Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. We're very pleased to have Harry Nelson, healthcare attorney and author of the United States of Opioids, join us today as our podcast guest to talk about his involvement with the opioid crisis enveloping the United States today. So, Harry, would you share some information about yourself with our listeners? And also, do share some information that you're a native Michigander. Yes. Uh, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Southfield, Michigan. I count myself as a, uh, a faithful member of the Michigan diaspora out here in Los Angeles. I, I tried to raise my kids to be strictly sports fans of uh, Detroit sports and uh, the University of Michigan. Uh, I, you know, My background was I, I graduated from the University of Michigan uh, Law School in 92, uh, I spent some time in Chicago where I got trained as a healthcare lawyer and relatively early in the days of healthcare law as a sort of distinct specialty. And then in 2001, came out to Los Angeles uh, where I've built the, what's the largest healthcare specialty law firm in, uh, in Los Angeles. We're just under 30 lawyers doing a lot of work on physician related issues, medication related issues, and a whole range of, you know, innovation and uh, within healthcare. So, um, it is great to be on the podcast and uh, always excited to reconnect with uh, Michiganders. Thank you for that introduction. We are constantly hearing updates about the latest development in the opioid crisis. Harry, can you clarify what exactly the nature of the crisis is? Is it pharmaceutical company greed? Doctors overprescribing? What's the central problem at the heart of the crisis? So when we talk about the opioid crisis, the problem that most people are referring to is Over the last 20 years, since the very late 90s, we've seen a quadrupling of the overdose death rate from opioids. So as you noted, many people link it to uh, originally to the overprescribing of OxyContin, which was heavily marketed by Purdue Pharma, along with other uh, opioid medications. And that that certainly is a, uh, that's the part of the crisis that drives the headlines. We had the death rate was uh, from all drug overdoses last year was 72,000 in in 2017 with uh, about two-thirds being opioids. The other parts of the crisis are a profound rise in the level of addictions in this country, roughly 20 million Americans with a substance use disorder, again, about two-thirds opioids, and uh, also uh, uh, just a massive problem of people living in chronic pain. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, there's absolutely a big problem of pharmaceutical marketing, well, which is getting treated both in litigation and in work around how the FDA regulates big pharma. There's a challenge in how physicians prescribe, but there are many, many more points of system failure where we have to ask what was the role of government agencies in inadequately policing and uh, responding to the crisis? Uh, what was the role of healthcare payers? you know, insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers in kind of turning a blind eye to the way that uh, these medications were causing such enormous problems in this country and and looking more broadly at a whole host of problems in our culture 
that really made America so ripe for this terrible crisis. Very interesting. So many, many contributing factors. Yeah, I, I try to get people to really think about the crisis as a much deeper, broader, and more nuanced problem rather than just to look at any one individual culprit. Now, you talk in the book about how your legal work on issues related to the crisis drove you to actually write the book. So can you tell us about particular cases that led to the decision to write the United States of Opioids? Yeah, so shortly after I came to California in the early 2000s, I was working with a number of physicians who were treating pain and uh, um, addiction, and I got involved in uh, a number of cases where there were essentially celebrity overdoses. The, the, most, the one that really affected me the most was that when Michael Jackson died in uh, 2009, there was a, uh, a criminal trial for the doctor who had prescribed him a whole series of medications and was giving him an anesthetic, propofol, in a home setting that was inappropriate. And what happened was I started getting telephone calls from other doctors who called and said, I also prescribed to uh, Michael, and I did it under fake names, and I'm worried, am I going to be next? And uh, one of the cases that really, um, to this day, sort of still haunts me is that a doctor who was very agitated and worried that he was going to lose his license, and I thought I had calmed him down in our conversation, and but he didn't show up for his appointment, and I learned a couple days later that he had taken his own life and overdosed intentionally as a result of his panic about the case. And for me, you know, what I began to see as I did a number of these cases for physicians, and then I started, as a result of which I started doing work around the country on a whole series of, you know, crisis response uh, to overdose, where addiction treatment programs were uh, were basically afraid the tragic events were going to cost them their licensure, started turning to me and asking me what they could do to demonstrate that they had understood the problem and addressed it. What I realized was I had I had shifted out of the, you know, ordinary terrain that lawyers who work in healthcare work on, which are issues like fraud and abuse and regulatory compliance. And I was dealing with this profound safety issue and also with this deeper underlying crisis that that really went to a profound spiritual and social crisis in this country. And I felt like it was necessary to put some things out there in writing this book in order to share a message and hopefully get more people aware and involved in the work that needs to be done. Because this problem is not just, it went far beyond any legal problem that I was fixing for any one client or working or anybody was working on it. It's really a national epidemic that's going to take a massive effort uh, collectively to address. From a very lay perspective, Harry, can you just add, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking here, do you think it's a contributory factor of the pharmaceutical companies failing to educate physicians regarding the addictive components of the medications, or is that not accurate? No, so there really, there, look, there were some terrible things done by uh, Big Pharma that are only now coming out, right? The there was some intentional, it was clear, it's clear, the more that evidence is coming out through the opioid litigation, it's become clear that Purdue Pharma, for example, and other opioid makers knew perfectly well that these drugs were being misused and that people were dying and they continued to provide incentives. They would fly doctors on fancy trips and take doctors out for fancy meals and pay marketers handsomely for selling more, more, more 
without paying attention to the consequences. So that there was a level of really outrageous behavior that's going to need to be reckoned with. But for me, the bigger, more challenging issue that we have to take on as lawyers uh, and in, in the uh, political uh, solution is that the FDA is just, first of all, the FDA has so few resources to address the enormous uh, regulatory need, but even more profoundly, the FDA solution to this crisis was to come out with a program called REMS, which stands for Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategies. And basically what the FDA said was, okay, we're worried about this problem, so we're going to require drug makers to put out more educational information for doctors so that doctors are more attuned to the risk issues. And the data, the early data has shown from some of these REMS is that doctors who read this material prescribe more of the drugs. So we have a fundamental hmm. uh, challenge in that the uh, pharmaceutical industry is a very effective at getting doctors to prescribe more and more. And the question becomes, what other alternatives to pharmaceutical uh, solutions to pharmacology are out there that might be safer and more effective in addressing the problem? That That is just fascinating and, and terrible to think how huge this problem is and how an effort to intervene even on a, a first level went sideways. And then rather than have it be a prevention kind of an outcome, it amplified the problem. To me, you know, it points to a structure. The problem is not just the behavior of drug companies. It's a structural problem in our system. We have such a massive need for access to care in this country that we mm-hmm. that the the solution that we always prefer is the simplest solution and the simplest solution is always a pill and so for example when we look at what the responses to the opioid crisis have been the the two most striking responses have been the overdose drug narcan naloxone that we've put in the hands of first responders and police to reverse overdoses and the spread of buprenorphine sold under brands like Suboxone as a form of medication-assisted treatment for addiction and so for opioid addiction. You know, on one level, those are, it's import, those are both important, you know, pieces of the puzzle. But the bigger question is, like, why does our system always, we, well, it's not easy to say why does our system prefer pills. The answer is because they're cheaper and faster and more efficient. But the real question is, how do more people get access to other tools, whether it's mental health support, uh, whether it is more interdisciplinary approaches that involve physical therapy and chiropractic and a whole range of non-pharmacologic solutions, that's a much harder problem. The reality is we have, we have a massive need for people to get treated for pain and for addiction, and we have a system that only can treat a small fraction of them. Absolutely. In the book, you are extremely critical of particular government agencies for not doing more to address the crisis. Where do you see things going wrong in Washington, D.C., with respect to a response to the crisis? So, you know, I think that uh, the one, the good, only good news out of Washington, D.C. is that there's a bipartisan commitment to addressing this crisis. The challenge has been that some of the legacy agencies have responded kind of reflexively to the crisis in ways that have been damaging. So uh, I do, in the book, uh, express a significant amount of criticism towards the DEA. Uh, In particular, the DEA has been responsible since 1970 for enforcing the Controlled Substances Act 
And if you look at the way that the DEA has played a role in this crisis, there are certain things that it has done that have been uh, damaging, and there's been certain things that it has failed, where it's really failed to fulfill key functions. So in terms of what it's done wrong, the pressure, you know, we decided in this country in, in a 1920 Supreme Court decision that the issue of, of regulating prescribing practices was a matter for the states to handle. Uh, it was really a state decision. And yet the DEA has continued to put extreme pressure on physicians around the country and created a climate of fear uh, that doctors are going to uh, lose their ability to prescribe through just a, a series of overly aggressive measures. I, when I go around the country and speak to the uh, prescribing community and the addiction community and the public policy community, the consensus is that most of the pill mills and really uh, dangerous prescribing practices have largely been dealt with, and yet the DEA continues to just look for new targets. So we've seen this pendulum swing where people in pain are having trouble getting access to medication because doctors are afraid of the DEA. So that's one issue. But the other thing mm -hmm. that's troubling is that we, we have a desperate need for new pain therapies, and we have all kinds of promising substances that the DEA has refused to allow people to research or has made very difficult for people to research, most famously cannabis. I speak to and work with public universities uh, around the country who all say the same thing. We have researchers who are dying to do uh, critical research on the efficacy of cannabis to treat pain and other conditions, and yet we're federally funded. So how do we get over the DEA position, right? Uh, we, we had a case actually last month where Congress overrode the DEA uh, through the new farm bill on the scheduling of, of non-cannabis-based hemp-sourced CBD, which is, among other things, uh, being used to treat a whole series of conditions. So the DEA has been just intransigent. And then finally, the, the biggest place where we would have hoped the DEA could be a valuable resource would have been in stopping the illegal trafficking of fentanyl. Uh, and when you, look mm -hmm. at the, uh, when you look at what's going on, what's really happened is that while the DEA was so busy cracking down on doctors, the real problem beginning in about 2013 was the flooding of this country with fentanyl from coming in by mail from China, coming across the border from Mexico. And the DEA literally took three years to realize that we had no mechanisms to even detect the inflows and to start to respond to it. So I just think we have to ask ourselves, what are agencies like the DEA doing? Are they really serving us? And we're seeing even that Congress uh, is attuned to the need to really force a new level of action and changes at the DEA. Carrie, you had mentioned about the climate of fear that the DEA is putting in the minds of physicians across the country. And I can only imagine the anxiety that this must be causing among these physicians when they are looking to and listening to the DEA and then having the duty to provide the standard of care to their patients and these patients who are in extreme pain and they're looking at modalities to try and determine how to treat these people. Do you see that this is causing a big anxiety in the medical community, the treaters? Oh, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, 15 years ago, the government, by the way, was, was pressuring physicians to treat pain as the fifth vital sign, and doctors were getting in trouble with medical boards for under-prescribing for patients in need. And today, what I hear from pain medicine doctors around the country 
is that they just they just can't take the risk of prescribing to new patients. A lot of doctors who treat pain have have legacy patients they've been seeing for 10 plus years who are on large dosage of opioids. We we measure opioid dosages by uh, what's called MME morphine milligram equivalents, and like 250 would be a very large dose. So a lot of pain doctors may have patients who they've been seeing for 10 years who are getting those kind of doses and are resistant to tapering off. But if you talk to most pain doctors today, they will not give uh, doses more than a quarter to a third of that because any going above 80 to 90 MME is a trigger for DEA action and medical board review in many states. And so we're seeing a whole, we have just literally millions of people around the country who are being turned away from doctor's offices and hospital emergency rooms and don't have any obvious place to turn except to illegal sources. So this is a massive problem that I think we still have a lot uh, to reckon with. Now, in the United States of opioids, you argue that one consequence of the crisis has been a significant number of changes to U.S. laws and regulations, and I know you addressed that just a bit earlier, but can you share the most important aspects that the legal community should be paying attention to? Sure. Yeah, I I think you can draw a direct line between the beginning of the opioid crisis and the passage of the Mental Health Parity Act in 2008, which really said to health insurance plans, you can't discriminate between substance use disorder and mental health treatment and medical surgical treatment uh, coverage. And, uh, and also, you can draw that same line to the Affordable Care Act and the inclusion of substance use disorder treatment in the essential health benefit. So I think that there's been a, a significant change in our laws at a federal level, and that plays out also in the state's relating to the need to address this crisis. And it's going to take decades for us to uh, actually enforce and really have mental health parity and make sure that people are getting access to care. So, so, and we even saw, you know, most, one of the most interesting pieces of the whole political back and forth over the Affordable Care Act was that nine Republican senators, you know, re- resisted the effort to repeal the Medicaid expansion um, and roll back Medicaid as the administration had wanted to do because of very clearly because of the opioid crisis. So the most significant change has been this awareness of a need to reform our healthcare laws to deal with the immediacy of the overdose threat and more broadly to uh, expand access to addiction treatment. And then I I think that we're seeing the laws change in a whole series of other more subtle ways in terms of changing standards for uh, law enforcement in responding to crises and responding to overdose, we're seeing changes, you know, in the healthcare provider insurance disputes over what's covered. I think, frankly, I think that you can tie some of the pressure to change laws related to marijuana to the the pressure for uh, more access to alternative therapeutics. So I, I think there's plenty of places for lawyers to be paying attention to how our laws have adapted and are continuing to adapt, and lots of places where we need more more work to uh, not only as advocacy, but just to help, you know, the, the business and government or and nonprofit organizations working around these issues just to get caught up to what's going on. I wanted to share that on January 28th at the American Bar Association mid-year meeting, the House of Delegates adopted Resolution 108, which urges expanded access to treatment 
for opioid addiction, education and advocacy efforts, support for families, and legal and policy reforms to address the opioid crisis. They see this as such a significant problem that they're throwing their weight behind it and asking the lawyers and judges and law students in the country to become educated about this issue. Yeah, it's uh, thanks for, for mentioning that. It's a uh, this is the problem here is so big. And by the way, getting worse. We're seeing the overdose death rate go up at nearly a fifteen percent year over year level, and uh, uh, likewise uh, the rates of addiction and pain. Um, and there's there's so much work to be done here, uh, and it starts with awareness. That's one of the big messages that I tried to get out there in the book is that even just beginning to recognize the magnitude of the problem and on a on a personal level in our families, in our communities, and uh, in our workplaces to recognize the extent to which people are struggling with these issues directly or, or having family members and friends do so is, is a big piece of the puzzle. So it's a, a starting point of awareness and advocacy on the part of the legal profession could be an immensely valuable piece here, and I give credit to the ABA for, uh, for calling attention to it. So have these legal changes that we've been discussing, do you see that they're making a difference? Do you see that a solution to the problem is progressing? Is it getting better? Or what do you see? You know, the data shows that the certainly the overdose death problem is getting worse. We had like about a 15% jump from 2016 to 2017. We haven't seen the 2018 data yet, but there's every reason to think that the problem is continuing to get worse. Uh, but I, I have to say that I do think the legal changes are reflecting a profound change in our awareness of the need to provide, for example, addiction treatment resources. So the numbers are about 20 million people with a substance use disorder, and about a million and a half of those people get treated every year. And, you know, and these changes are, are forcing an awareness of that, of that gap. Uh, and now the question is, how do we deal with it? Uh, so I do think that there's going to be a lot, there's long-term promise in the changes being made, but we have a few, we have years to go before the numbers on the ground of the suffering actually start to get better. You know, Harry, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was when you talked about awareness. I think, I think that's huge when you talk about substance abuse disorders, because I think in general, anyone thinks that when there's a substance abuse, that it's a self-inflicted issue. And as I understand it, and please correct me if I am wrong, in many instances with the opioid crisis, that's not the situation. And it's not necessarily self-inflicted. It's, you know, pain treatment, as you had indicated earlier, and otherwise. Can you speak to that briefly to educate our listeners? Yeah, it's a great point. So, uh, yeah, so the, the challenge here is that opioids, effectively opioids are compounds that interact with these receptors in our neurons and our nervous systems to relieve pain and produce pleasure. And so, it, you know, it's the pleasure piece is what drives the illegal use, but that pain relief that opioids offer is really fundamentally distinct on a biochemical level than any other category of medications that we currently have available, which means that a lot of the people who have a dependency and an addiction are people who needed or need, continue to need these medications. And uh, this is not a situation where, where, anybody, where we should take a broad brush and just say, we need to get rid of these. That's the, part of the challenge here is that it's not about illegal use entirely. 
it's really uh, in large part about people who have a genuine problem of pain and they need uh, access to these medications because these are the best we've got in spite of their addictiveness and their other risks. So I think it's a great point, and it's a part of the big challenge here uh, that makes it impossible for us just to eradicate opioids and instead figure out a way to, to live with them where we need them and try and control the, the harms that are being caused in other places. We had heard that you had pledged to share $1 million of your 2019 online profits to charities across America. Can you elaborate on this and uh, also tell our listeners how they can get your book? Absolutely. So, yeah, so this, we, my feeling was that this, the point of uh, putting this book out there was not only to increase awareness, but to actually begin to do something. I, I've had the privilege as a result of this work of being in direct dialogue with government policymakers and with uh, leaders of some, some really inspiring nonprofits out there doing some critical work. And one of the important pieces for me was to make sure that this book wasn't just um, another example of kind of rubbernecking at this crisis and, you know, sort of scr- head scratching, but was actually doing something. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we're going to be, uh, we've partnered with organizations like uh, Young People in Recovery is one, National Association of Recovery Residences, and then an organization that I sit on the board of, the Behavioral Health Providers Foundation. We're very committed to, you know, t- developing tangible resources for use in the workplace, in schools, in uh, medical practice to try and do something. So, I, yeah, and, and if people are interested in uh, reading more or learning about the book, the website Not Another Stat is the main website, notanotherstat.com, where I'm selling the book. The book's on Amazon also. Uh, and if people want to reach me, and uh, um, I'm delighted to talk to anybody, part of what I'm hoping and part of what's been happening and what I'm hoping will continue is to uh, get more people to share stories because I think it really humanizes all the many faces of this of this problem and the pain that it's causing. And, it, and I think it's very it's a really valuable thing. So people can reach me through my law firm, uh, nelsonhardeman.com at hnelson at nelsonhardeman.com. And I, I appreciate uh, Joanna Tish. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, and spending time talking about this important issue. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest, Harry Nelson, for a wonderful program. Yes, this has been a very important topic. I am so glad that you joined us and that our listeners get to hear about the excellent work that you're doing. Thank you, Harry. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS, find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan.
or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.